everyone, and welcome to this episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And we are both with the American Enterprise Institute, but today we are coming to you from the studios of the Manhattan Institute City Journal, home of the 10 Blocks podcast, which you can find on iTunes or whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. So today, Ian, let's talk about a great new investigation that was done by the Kansas City Star. Yeah, well, you know, our entire podcast is trying to track these systems that are supposed to be helping kids, but oftentimes seem to work at exact opposite purposes. And as you just mentioned, the Kansas City Star has done some extraordinary reporting over the last year to focus on what happens to kids who age out of the foster care system, because by nearly every measure... States are failing in their role to take care of what are some of the most vulnerable children. You know, like roughly 23,000 kids across the country, you know, age out of the system every year. And they have disproportionate rates of, you know, not finishing education, not finishing high school on time, incarceration rates, homeless levels. Tell us a little bit about this, Naomi, because you've, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time, you know, researching this general topic, but it's actually extraordinary because this is something we should care about, not just the kids in foster care, but all the negative things that happen to them after they leave. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people gloss over these stories about the tragedies of foster care and what's going on in the system. And, you know, there are about half a million kids who are in foster care in, in any given year. But still, I think for a lot of people around the country, when you divide that up into their state or into their community, it doesn't it seem like a big problem. And, I, you know, I don't want to say that in kind of an unfeeling way, but I think people think, well, we have much more pressing problems in our communities than foster care. And really, what can you do about that anyway? So I think one important thing about this series that the Kansas City Star wrote was really trying to explain how the foster care problem really trickles into every other major societal problem that we're seeing from substance abuse, as you mentioned, but especially to the prison population. I mean, it was pretty shocking. Yeah, right. The Star surveyed nearly 6,000 inmates in 12 states. And what they found is that one in four said they were the product of foster care. Yeah, that that is a really striking statistic. And if you are concerned about kind of, you know, the costs and the, the high number of people who are, you know, in our jails and prisons in this country, I think, you know, looking at foster care is a very good place to start. Which is not to say, and I and I really want to emphasize this, which is not to say that it is the fault of foster care that these kids are in the prison system. I mean, one of the really difficult things to untangle when you're looking at child welfare is how much of the problem is the original mistreatment that kids have suffered, you know, at the hands of their, their parents or extended family or, you know, if it's another adult in their lives, and how much of it is the system, you know, that maybe then compounds the problem. But I don't think we just want to look Look at foster care and say, aha, you know, foster care is the thing that's driving the prison population. Well, I think that's the whole key of this podcast. There is nuance to all of these things. So we can't fully blame the system for sentencing these kids to these terrible outcomes. But that's why it's important that we first recognize the problem. Why is it, A, that there's so many kids entering foster care in the first place? And then why is it that there's so many kids that are exiting foster care seemingly destined towards really bad outcomes? Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really emphasized again in this series is the high number of placements that kids experience. Now, I think that the reporters here found, you know, they found kids who had experienced 80 different places. Placements. I think that that is definitely an outlier. It it is it's it is a crazy number. 
But, you know, I think we need to dig down a little bit and ask ourselves, you know, what is going on here? So a few months ago, I interviewed Lynn Johnson, who is the Assistant Secretary of ACF, uh, Administration for Children and Families in Washington. She actually comes from Colorado, where she was in charge of a county-based system there. She called this problem the BAPA bed problem. She said, you know, we, we really do have a shortage of places to put these kids. And what happens is, and I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but really this was, this was really, I think, the best theory I've heard so far. When you have a shortage of beds and you have different foster families that have said, you know, I can take in, you know, say a sibling group or I can take in a special needs child. Well, you give them a child, maybe that, that child is in a sibling group or maybe not. But then another child comes into that system who, you know, meets the criteria of that particular family, but there's no place else to put them. And so then you kick, you actually remove the children who are in that mm. home mm. and then put this other child in there. And it's like this game of musical beds. It's like whack-a-mole for, right, for children. Where right. you never, you never have enough. And what's the constraint there when we say we never have enough? Is it just right. we need more responsible foster care we parents? We definitely need more responsible foster parents. And that is a theme I want to keep coming back yeah, to Yeah, so here. What, what holds us back? What's the constraint there? What, what's the force that's not? Because I'm sure there are a lot of Americans who understand this problem and would love to open up their home to vulnerable children. Yeah, so let's go down on kind of a little sidetrack here, if you don't mind, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> so this is actually an issue that I've looked a lot at, at a lot. Every state in the country reports having a shortage of foster beds. And then, by the way, at the same time that we have this shortage, we're also closing down group homes or what are called congregate care facilities. So we're actually making the whack-a-mole problem even right. worse because there's no backup plan for these kids. Like yep. there's no place. And frankly- But oftentimes group homes can be very valuable, especially for older kids right. who may have- Right. If you have 80 behaviors. placements, it's not that there are 80 foster families in this state that said, you know, oh, you've been in our house for two days, get out already. Like, right. you know, I mean, I'm not, I am not trying, by the way, to blame the child here. I'm just suggesting that 80 placements suggest that this child has some really big challenges that your typical foster family may not be up for and that may merit, you know, place in a good congregate care facility. And we could talk about like yeah, the quality what, what defines control. good, right. But in terms of foster parents, I think there are so many cultural factors working against people going into foster care now. So one of them that I've really thought a lot about, because I go to, for instance, a, you know, one of the, the largest conservative synagogues in the country, there are something like 800 families at the synagogue I go to. And when I talk to people about, you know, what I'm working about foster care, everybody looks at me like I have three heads. I mean, nobody, because no, they, they, don't, they don't know anyone who is engaged in this work. They don't know anyone who's a foster parent. They don't know anyone who's a foster kid. And it's not because they're bad people. Like they're involved in all sorts of other aspects of community service and, and giving back and, and that sort of aspect of life. But I think when it comes to kids, you know, the pressure in American kind of middle class, the milieu, you know, we both, we both live in the suburbs yes. of New York. Yep. And the pressure for having perfect children is so great that it's almost hard to imagine how these families families would explain a child who has severe emotional or behavioral problems coming into their homes. You know, and I'm not even I'm not just talking about a child who doesn't look like you because yeah. that may be the case too. But just we're so focused on like how many activities can I sign my kid up for? Going back to kind of the basics of doing foster care like 
How can I welcome this child into my home? How can I make sure they're, you know, that they're fed enough and that they're clothed well and that we start to assimilate them into this community? Those are so much more basic questions than I think a lot right. of these parents are thinking well, about. Well, I'd love to talk about what are the kinds of incentives or awareness efforts that should happen to make more families overcome yeah. that barrier. Yeah, there was a great movie that came out. Did you see this movie last year with Mark Wahlberg? I forget the name. I forgot the name of it, too. But actually, the federal government actually tried to use that movie to help recruit foster parents. And the guy who was the producer of it actually had done foster care himself. And silly was the, as the movie was in various parts, it was actually extraordinarily accurate about what the process was mm. like. The family ends up adopting older siblings out of foster care. They had a lot of big problems. And at one point in the movie, they actually, and a spoiler alert for those of you who want to go watch the movie that we cannot think of the name of, they actually go back to the mother, you know, who has had- To the biological mother. Right. Big addiction problems. And it's clear in the movie that she is not ready to take them back, but she takes them back and eventually they get taken away again. And that, to me, is like is actually one of the biggest issues that these foster parents face. Not that they're not prepared for the idea that a child should go back with their biological parents, but all the back and forth that happens, that really, I think, takes a toll on a lot of families. Yeah. I mean, one of the things in reading this, the uh, reports in the Kansas City Star, you know, for those kids who've been moved so many times, they have a yearning to go back to their biological yeah. family. And in some ways, they almost uh, romanticize because their experience has been so bad in the foster system, they tend to forget why they were removed in the first place. Right. And some of them were removed so young. And also, they have no way and we have no way actually of finding out like what was actually behind their removal in the first place. I mean, one of the people who's in this particular article talks about, you know, how he was removed because... His brother managed to get the door open with a broom somehow in the middle of the night. And when police came to their home, they found some drug paraphernalia in the home. So, you know, a permanent removal from a home just because police have found drug paraphernalia is actually it's pretty, pretty severe. Pre it's, a, it's pretty severe. And, it's, and I would say it's pretty rare. Like, I think my guess would be that there are some other circumstances. And what's interesting is that this, you know, young man later in life, he reconnects with the biological mother and sadly, once again, she gets addicted again yep. and, and they, they lose touch. But I, I do think you're right about this romanticization that goes on of the biological family. Yeah, one thing that's interesting that the, the, the series highlighted is the, the distinction between neglect and abuse. Yeah. And because it seems like clearly abuse is, is, would be more rationale for removing kids, but it seems like there's some gray area in what constitutes enough neglect so that a child should be removed from their home. Yeah, this is something I think we, we've talked about a little bit before, but I think it's so important that people understand what's involved in neglect. Like, for instance, you know, if you're a mother and your boyfriend is actually physically abusing your child, you could be charged with neglect. So that child is in serious danger and you are not intervening, but you're not actually hitting the kid yourself. That counts as neglect. I think most people, though, their immediate reaction would be like, oh, I get it. You know, that's serious. But especially with young kids, I think the neglect charge is really important. So often, of course, it involves substance abuse 
when I talk to people like who are other parents about this issue and I say, okay, so think back, you know, our kids are both a little bit older now, but think back to when your kids were, say, two, like, which is, by the way, my least favorite stage of childhood. It's adorable, but it's like they're they're mobile, but totally irrational. Right. And so, you know. And so are the parents, by the way. Right. Well, that that too. But, but, you know, they're, you know, you're doing everything you, you you know, you've gated them in so they don't touch the stove, so they don't wander out into the street, so you can't turn around while they're in the bathtub. I mean, all of these issues. And I say to people like, okay, imagine doing that while you're high. Because yes, we're irrational and we're sleep deprived. And we make mistakes, even though we have not had a drink or, you know, ingested any drugs. But the people who are actually out of it, you you can't take care of a right. child like that. So what is the answer in that case? So if, you, if you're, again, in these systems, you read this, read this Kansas City Star report, it does seem like these the trigger is pulled, it seems, in some instances, pretty quickly. But what's the, what is the right answer? Because it, you know, it's interesting that years ago, it wasn't there this assumption that it was actually the government that had the responsibility for child welfare, right? It was a much more local, privately driven religious organizations, community-based organizations that played much more of a role in ensuring that there was a more you know, say it, loving environment that took care of children. But it seems like as we've tipped the scales to government control of child welfare, that there are more arbitrary decisions around when a child should be removed. Yeah, I I think that's partly true. I mean, the first line of defense was, of course, always the extended family. My sense is that the the kind of dysfunction that we're seeing that that affects, you know, entire families, entire neighborhoods is not the kind of dysfunction you used to see before. So you used to sort of see, you know, people who are definitely poor, who definitely had problems. But there was a, an idea like, oh, this parent has screwed up, and now the grandmother is going to take care of this right. child, and that is the end of the story. Or a local private organization right. can, can help sure, for some short period of time. Yes, and that's, that's, that would be kind of the second line of defense. You know, there are other people who are in close proximity to this child who are able to witness what is going on. You know, so much of the, the sad cases we read now happen because of the isolation of these families. Right. Nobody knows what's going on behind that door. I mean, I don't want to romanticize everything about life 50 years ago, but I would say that it would have been much harder to do that kind of isolation, particularly in some of the urban environments that we're talking about. But that kind of isolation, I think, also compounds these problems and means that the other adults in the in the extended family and in the community and in the religious group don't really know what's right. happening. Right. I mean, again, in the series, there are several instances where they write about kids who, whether they're incarcerated or they go into these placements that are very far away yeah. from their schools, from right. their biological families. And so, again, it's compounding this issue because they just feel so alone. They yeah. don't feel that they're part of a support system yeah. at all. And that, and that also, by the way, I don't want to go too far down this track before we talk about something else, but but it also means that there's not as much accountability. There was a case on Long Island maybe, I don't know, two or three years ago of a man who was taking in foster kids and abusing them. But he was being shipped these kids from the city or from other parts of the state, and nobody knew what was going on in his house. And the family members of those foster kids did not really have access to them you know, even the yep. family members who hadn't done anything wrong. And so they couldn't see what the effects were. So, you know, trying to, you know, limit the the yep. radius, you know, that these kids are traveling in order to make sure that they still know someone, that they know their teachers, that they're still, they still have contact with other people who have been good for their life. Right. I mean, when you tell a story like that of this, this guy in Long Island that was abusing kids, that, that's such a terrible 
narrative for foster care families, just for the benefit of the audience, that's unique, right? It absolutely. Is. Right. right. No, most, unfortunately, most of the, what we call repeat maltreatment, you know, maltreatment that happens after you've already been investigated and maybe something has been done by CPS, most of that happens when you go back with the biological family, unfortunately. Foster parents are, by and large, not taking in kids to hurt them in any way, and they generally have the best of intentions. I no, think. no. We love foster care parents because yeah. they are doing incredible work at a, at a time that for, for kids at their most vulnerable period. Right. But let's talk about kind of like heading this off at the pass a little bit for, for the last couple of minutes. One of the things that I have written about a little bit is an organization called Safe Families, and there are actually a couple of other organizations like it that now have popped up. They exist in more than half the states in the country. And what they do is try to rebuild those informal networks that we used to see a number of years ago. And so before a child, the idea is to sort of stop this process before a child has actually been mistreated at all. So you have to have, you know, for this to work, you have to have parents who have some self-awareness enough to recognize that they're in crisis. But once they do that, they can approach safe families and say, I need to go to an addiction treatment program. I am being evicted from my house. I need to go get my appendix removed, whatever it is. And I have no one to take care of this child. And I'm worried that if I try to go it alone, that the government is going to come in and take my child reasonably enough, perhaps, but because I cannot care for them. And so Safe Families has done background checks and has a whole and done training on a whole network of people who can take that child into their home. Again, this is informally outside of the government, you know, for usually it's less than six months. Sometimes it's even as little as, you know, two or three weeks. And the, the parent actually continues to have access to that child and can visit them whenever they want. There's no, you know, there doesn't have to be a social worker acting as a go-between. But what it does is it it sort of provides not only the safety net for that child now that they need, but also even once the child goes back with the, the biological parent, this family, the safe family's family, often continues to provide support to that parent. Like, you know, call me if you're in an emergency and you need to go to work and you need a babysitter, you know, that kind of thing. It sounds incredible. And so if I'm the parent of a child in a, in a tough situation... How would I learn about safe families? And is this something I just volunteer? I call them and suddenly I have this relationship? Or is it a government entity that's saying this is the organization that you have to work with? I think sometimes there are government referrals, although there's not not a mandatory. Don't it, they don't tell you you must go to safe families, otherwise we're gonna take your kid away, because that would, you know, sort that, of that, reinsert the coercive element here. Sometimes they find out about it from a local church or, you know, just a local advertising or that kind of thing. But, you know, a lot of people Again, I think the two problems are people may not know about the resource. But the other thing is it does require a parent to know enough about their own situation to recognize this is going downhill fast. I mean, it seems like that that is a more trusting situation where, again, they're, the parent is not being coerced, but they here's an institution that's saying we've really researched families that are here voluntarily. They're not being paid extra. Like there's no there's no artificial intervention that's creating some kind of perverse incentives. Let's put it this way. It right. seems like they're there only for the benefit of hap- helping the child, and without the perception that they're taking the the child away from that parent. Right. And and it's interesting. This is, I think, when a previous episode, we talked a little bit about what I think is one of the problems at the heart of child welfare agencies, which is that they're trying to serve the child and the family. And sometimes these two objectives uh, objectives may come into conflict. 
And so, you know, you have a child welfare agency that could take away your child, but is also saying they're trying to fix your family at the same time. And parents are not often quite sure what to make of that. Like, they don't want to share their problems or their struggles with a child welfare worker because that may result in the child getting taken away. If you share that information, though, with, say, families, or you share that, I mean, assuming that the child is not in immediate physical danger, or if you share that with the safe families volunteers, you know, you say, right. like, I really, I, I have to work, you know, 40 hours next week, and I have no one to watch my three-year-old, you know, that's information that a child welfare worker, like, alarm bells may go off and say, like, who is watching this kid? But the safe families work, you know, family might take that same information and say, can I babysit? Like, and that's two totally different reactions based on the incentives of the organization. No, no, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I, I chair an organization called Spence Chapin. And for young women who are pregnant and are considering an adoption, Spence Chapin offers this incredible service, which is what's called interim care providers, where these volunteer angels basically take care of your baby as you're deciding what you want to do, whether or not you want to create an adoption plan, become a mother. But it's this voluntary, you know, non-paid interaction where at the most vulnerable time that a young mother in this case is making a decision for their child, there's this nonprofit organization that's providing this resource. Last question. Do you think that these kinds of entities, does it help or hurt if they start to get funded by the government in terms of the government achieving its child welfare objectives? I don't think it helps. I mean, I, I really think that, again, when they are funded by the government, then they become kind of a program or a service that is then offered by and, – and a lot of parents complain about this. You know, child welfare is offering me services, but it's not really they're offering it to me. There's It's sort of this veiled threat, like, do this or we'll start proceedings against you. And I'd rather not see these organizations get co-opted yep. by the government stepping in to fund them as great the work as they're doing. And so that's why it's necessary for, I think, so many private citizens to not only do the volunteer work, but also, but also contribute these organizations exactly financially. financially when they can. So yep. anyway, well, that is another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And you can hear episodes of Are You Kidding Me? wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes and the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute website. Thanks so much. <laughs>